0: Chapter 17 of The Queen of Appalachia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada The Queen of Appalachia by Joe H. Borders. Chapter 17 The Queen's Fascinating Recital years ago began the queen when the trio has reassembled in her room about thirty minutes after leaving the dining hall years ago a colony of pioneers crossed over the great Appalachian mountains and came to a very large stream they were in search of a certain section of the uninhabited country which one of the fathers had pictured in a dream and they directed their movements in accordance therewith they were not surprised therefore to discover this dream and had come prepared to build a craft suitable to carry the party consisting of eighty-two families and several thousand pounds of miscellaneous articles such as beds wearing apparel tools manufactured goods raw materials great quantities of food grain and other seeds and hundreds of things to say nothing of machinery and livestock a complete outfit such as they would require to inhabit a new and raw country the craft was completed in a short time it was what was called a raft and made by scores of trees striped of their leaves and branches thrown into the water side by side and kept in place by cross ties securely nailed to each lock making a monster float, and one capable of carrying the entire cargo and passengers down the stream to the destination. It was summertime and the excursion was a delightful one in every way. The river was sufficiently large to enable the crude water-locked packet to make the numerous curves and bends with little or no assistance, both bow and stern being rigged with huge rudders. Roughly hoon, that part touching the water being flat, similar to an oar. The silent 4 oared sailor glided along with the current for five days and nights, when it was finally landed at a desolate locality hundreds of miles from the starting point. Here, the craft was abandoned and the start was made into the interior. A three-day's tramp! devoid of prominent incidents, brought them face to face with the foe they expected, but one that feared, and gave them alarm. All along their route an occasional red man was to be seen, indicating their existence everywhere. But up to this time they had given them no trouble, and yet everybody kept a sharp lookout for the Red Devils as they progressed i have read and heard so many descriptions of the awful scenes that followed the attack of a band of these wild men upon our grand old pioneers that even now the thought of that dreadful event chills my blood it was a bloody battle and flint rocks filled the air like a prolonged shower of hailstones our people escaped with small loss of life but though confined to a half-dozen Think of the woe and sorrow it occasioned in that camp. Although completely routed, the Indians renewed the attack the following day, being reinforced. Our people expected another conflict and had made their preparations accordingly. In the meantime, however, a cave was found in the vicinity near the banks of the stream which they were following, and they were making for this retreat with all possible haste when they were attacked the second time. Quickly organizing a plan of action and defense, a squad of our people was given charge of the women and children, who, with the loaded sleds, pushed towards the cave which was reached in safety. Our fighting forces were doing heroic work, and kept the enemy at bay with their flint rifles and their dash and courage, having learned the day before the weakness of the Redskins but they were overpowered at last, and recognizing the result of a hand-to-hand combat, our brave old heroes had to retreat. This unexpected maneuver gave the Indian warriors fresh courage, and it was a race of life or death for the Appalachians, who ran towards the cave with the velocity of the wind. On came the howling Chattaroy, yelling and brandishing their weapons of warfare it was a struggle but they gained the victory it was not an affair of honour and a retreat under the circumstances was praiseworthy the skirmish lasted perhaps three hours and when the little Appalachian army reached the sweet haven of safety the advance guard with all their effects were safely housed in the memworth cavern where the frightened woman and children had penetrated far into the gloomy expanse until they reached an open chamber, they had scarcely entered this roomy apartment when the horrible yells of native wild men reached them, which nearly frightened them into insensibility, expecting every moment that the next would be their last. A detachment of the Appalachian braves finally reached the inner chamber and bade them push on on they went as best they could in the darkness when suddenly a ray of light lit up the scene someone succeeded in igniting a pine torch giving the frightened people a glimpse of the wonderful spectacle in that vast underground world the guide with torch in hand sped on closely followed by those behind passing from one cavern to another avoiding the dangerous places through gloomy expanses and numerous small chambers until he came to a very small opening when he was at a loss whether to attempt an entrance those behind who were battling with the invading indians were again forced to retreat and took refuge in the darkness of the cave and with a guide soon caught up with the leaders hearing piercing yells of the enemy and knowing they were in close pursuit They plunged through the narrow fissure, and when the last person passed in, the opening was closed against the mad fiends by filling it with rock and dirt. Feeling secure for the time being, they stopped to rest and appease their hunger. I fear this recital is becoming tiresome, said the queen at this point in the unwritten history she was slowly narrating to her interested audience of two tiresome repeated boundly it is the most fascinating recital i have ever heard my sentiments exactly said paul what a wonderful memory in light of recent events my present faculties in that direction no doubt strikes you with amazement it does seem remarkable said she but my tale is but half told there are a number of points about which i would ask further information but i will reserve them for the end yes queen olivet we await the pleasure and further account of the trials and tribulations and the thrilling adventure of the brave and noble Appalachians," said Brownlee. resuming the historic romance the Appalachian queen gave her listeners a detailed account of the experiences of the early founders of her country graphically describing the difficulties encountered gigantic in proportions which at times seemed unsurmountable, death and famine were overcome in a miraculous manner she told of their trails and burdens as they groped their way through narrow fissures and gloomy sub-caverns for days and days until at last they entered the larger and mightier chambers which increased in magnitude as they proceeded, but with a full knowledge of the fact that they were forever shut out from the old world by walls impenetrable and as thick as the mountains. Passing out through a series of magnificent chambers, they soon found themselves in more comfortable quarters. She continued speaking of their triumphant exit from the more compact caverns, these stupendous rooms were full of interest to the artistic eye beautiful stalactites like huge icicles hung from the ceiling making columns of hanging pendants of different shapes that gave the apartment a brilliant appearance when illuminated by the torchlight especially magnificent are the numerous grottos with their range of statuary their columns of stalactites their groves of corals and caves and figures and their grand auditorium roofs no curio hall of ancient nor modern times can equal them in grandeur enchantment or architectural beauty the queen was evidently in love with the beauties of her country and she took advantage of the occasion to elaborate upon the beauties and splendour of the passing show with becoming enthusiasm Concerning the personnel of the original founders of Appalachia, the queen was equally flattering and among them were artisans, mechanics, skilled workmen, inventors, professional men, representatives of every trade and profession who made the kingdom of Appalachia the most progressive in the world, a statement that appears incomprehensible when the conditions of the country are taken into account this band of pioneers so the queen told our two friends pushed on into the bowels of that mammoth cavern until they reached an open space when a soft mellow light like the breaking of a spring dawn began radiating through the vast expanse of that underground world in time it grew brighter and brighter until the amazed little colonies stood in rays as bright and glorious as the noonday sun which in their despair they had given up all hopes of ever again beholding what the light was they were at a loss to know and the more devout were inclined to see in it the interposition of the divine hand but those of a scientific bent and education viewed it as a natural phenomenon subject to investigation and explanation as the timepieces of the gentlemen indicated the passing of the day the light began to fade until darkness reigned supreme and the wandering host lost in the mysterious veil retired to rest and to dream of an enchanted land they awoke the following morning continued the speaker to find the mist disappearing before the approaching illumination they found that the light which proceeded from the roof overhead at an immense height was brilliant and blindly dazzling in some places while at others it presented the appearance of a sheet of softer radiance and that its coming and going corresponded to the rising and setting of the sun the wise men of the colony began at once seeking a solution to the phenomenon and it was not long before they discovered that this vast underground world was a natural storehouse of earth's electricity which swept around the outer crust of the earth held motionless by the attraction of the sun while the earth sped on in never-ceasing revolutions here at the roof covering a magnificent land the metals offering a counter-attraction impeded and obstructed the passage of the electric current and the intense vibrations Thus caused, produced the light, which was inferior only to the great illuminator of the universe. Appalachia's grand old roof presents a natural sky to those accustomed to it, as it appears in the glorious radiance of our perfect sun, and its height when viewed at the capital and for miles and miles in every direction seems infinite. Here we now have a magnificent country, Traversed with the greatest system of railway known to the scientific world, besides other improvements that are unequaled. Coming down to more recent events and history, Queen Olivet explained the laws and government of her kingdom, which are alike novel and interesting. The queen is the supreme ruler of Appalachia and has sovereign authority over the entire kingdom, absolute power and holds her office during life the death of a queen creates a vacancy which is filled by an election submitted to the people who elect by popular vote queen olivet has just succeeded to the throne having been elected by a small majority over her competitor mademoiselle angelina and the rivalry between the two young ladies for this most exalted and crowning station was the key to the mystery that had puzzled the brain of Brownlee and Thornton the past few days. The queen presented a glowing description of the scene at the royal palace when she was crowned. Continuing the narration in which the reader is especially interested, she said, Down at Hell's Gate, the jumping-off point in the river where the water tumbles into unknown regions in earth and darkness, are the beautiful waterfalls which are called the rapids resembling in miniature to your niagara as shown in the picture gallery your chatarai shoals mr thornton are our rapids in abbreviated form at certain seasons of the year which corresponds with your winter and summer when the river is high a visit to the rapids is a great treat The raging stream with its ocean of water rushes over those falls with such force that it presents a scene that is as inspiring as it is enchanting. During the height of the inaugural ceremonies at the palace occurred the usual summer tide and I was arranging for an excursion to the rapids as a part of the festivities of the week. Angelina, my late rival for queenly honours, Feigned illness throughout the festal week thus absenting herself from the social functions as well as the public rights incidental to the coronation but on this excursion the closing number of the programme i sent her a special invitation refusing to accept apologies or excuses and she became my special or honoured guest we arrived at the rapids about one o'clock a thousand strong and it was a gay and happy throng sightseeing was the principal diversion and the high banks were lined with an admiring and enthusiastic assembly angelina was especially entertaining and apparently anxious to make the holiday one of pressure for me and when she suggested a promenade i accepted without hesitation there is a charming spot further up the river queen olivet she said which i discovered the last time i was here where the view is splendid come with me with pleasure i assured her and followed my guide chattering gaily as we went directly we arrived at the designated point we saw a high precipice overlooking the rushing water fully two hundred feet below we advanced close to the edge of the overhanging cliff so as to get a full view of the magnificent scene, when I lost my balance and grasped Angelina's arm. She shook me off, and the next instant I was whirling through space into the mad waters below. In Appalachia we have swimming pools, she explained, and fortunately I had learned the art of swimming and was an expert but I struck the water with such force that my limbs were devoid of strength, and I shot into the current like an imprisoned bird set at liberty. I was stunned. I could scarcely realize my impending fate, yet I kept my head above water. To the onlooker, I was ostensibly trying to beat the driftwood over the falls into Hillsgate. Soon I was shooting the rapids, plunging over clatteracks one after another with no possible escape from the death that awaited me on and on i went dashing madly through the seething foam-capped waters that hissed and buzzed as if in mockery of my pitiful cries for help the plashing of the waves and the awful hum resulting therefrom was maddening huge pieces of timber would plunge to the water towards the bottom as though full of animal life while here and there and all around me these same diving limbs were shooting up out of the water as if fleeing from danger through all this deluge and danger i quickly passed and with equal velocity was forced into the spiral whirlpool which the mighty rushing waters create in its volcanic scramble to enter hell's gate, the narrow fissure leading into untraversed and unknown regions. Into the serpentine pool I plunged when I found myself lying on a wave which revolved with lightning velocity, like a whirligig, driven by a steam engine, and I became so dizzy my head was gyrating in the same manner, blinding my mental faculties and yet i knew i was slowly going down and a moment later i dropped into a circular-shaped opening like a rocket and glided out in the rolling current if possible the current was swifter here than at the rapids and i fairly flew arriving in a very short time in what i took to be a large roomy expanse Here I once more had a few lessons in serpentine movements, a spin like a top, but with less velocity. In making one of a dozen or more revolutions, when I was worn out, both in body and mind, my hand caught hold of a rock, which I held onto with a death-like grip, and as soon as my strength would permit, I climbed out of the water onto a ledge of rock and sat down. Thank God, I cried with all the power I possessed. There I sat and cried and prayed until I was almost delirious. I was chilled through, my body was tired and bruised, my heart was lacerated, my mind was decaying and I was ready to give up in despair. To stay there in that horrible darkness was slow death. To go on with this dream was further pain and certain death. My brain was on fire and my head was still making those awful revolutions. I cried out in my extremity and the echo was maddening. I prayed unceasingly, but I felt that even God had deserted me. I tore my hair and bit my hands in my frenzy until at last my strength entirely deserted me and in my weakness I realized that a deathly sleep was taking possession of me. How long I lay there I know not, but falling into the water partially aroused me from the stupor, and I offered no resistance, but unconsciously keeping afloat until I reached the opening that carried the stream into further darkness and oblivion. Grasping the rocks overhead, my feet swept under, and I once more uttered a silent prayer, and with a final farewell to home and friends, my hands slowly loosened their hold. I gave myself to God and was ready to cross over the great river of peace into eternity. She could no longer keep back the tears and they now poured down her cheeks like rain. Brownlee and Thornton were both visibly affected, and they too were unable to suppress their weeping. Your prayers were answered, sweetheart, said Paul feelingly, breaking the sacred silence. While you were in dire distress, you turned to God, and in the midst of your unprecedented calamity, your appeals reached me as I stood on the mountain top, directly over you. In my progress towards the river, I became lost, as it were, and sat down. The wild animal that stirred me into activity was God's work, which not only hastened me on, but sent me on the right road that led to you. The same guiding hand will return you to your appellation home and reinstate you in the palace that is now no doubt occupied by an usurper. Truly spoken, said Brownlee, your experiences, Queen, are not only unprecedented, but have no parallel in history and no chapter of romance ever pictured a more thrilling, soul-stirring adventure. The most fascinating pages of fiction do not compare with your narrative. Of course you have no idea of the distance from this last pool to the point where you were rescued, asked Paul. No, I haven't the slightest idea. When my hands lost their hold, I likewise relinquished the last spark of hope, and my mind was a blank until I restored to sweet consciousness in your presence. I do not even remember the cry of distress that first attracted your attention and awoke you from your afternoon nap, Mr. Thornton. Pardon the ramming thought, queen, but what was the motive or inducements of the Appalachian pioneers to explore that cavern in other words? Why did they not retrace their steps and abandon the cave at the outset? asked Brownlee. They fully intended to do so, but delayed the attempt through fear of their enemies, and in moving their camp in the vicinity of running water, which was found next day, they lost track of the closed fissure through which they escaped, and were never able to find it again. In the blockade against the Indians was the crowning stroke in the final separation from the world, the taking the view as it were, she explained. Thank you, said Brownlee, that clears the atmosphere in the vicinity of the Kentucky Mammoth Cave. But about this utter outlet, this stream that invited your perilous adventure, what is the depth of the water at Hell's Gate, say, at this time of year? it is all guesswork mr brownlee but judging from the river above the rapids i would venture to say it is very shallow the stream from its ingress to hell's gate passes through a deep canyon walled on either side with solid stone forming continuous parallel crypts the entire distance presenting a yawning gulf that is inaccessible and unapproachable at times the bed of the river is nearly dry. Then I gather that all the portion of the cave beyond the river or canyon is yet unexplored. Your reasonings are correct, she replied. Plans for bridging the chasm have been submitted, however, and it is only a question of time when we will be in touch with the unsafe and heretofore neglected section of the Appalachians. You have churches and schools, of course. In abundance. Our schools are the pride of the people, and our churches are prosperous institutions. We manufacture our goods, and factories and shops are in evidence everywhere. But, she added, laughing, our exports always equals the imports. What about the circulating medium of the Appalachia? Our money consists of gold, silver, and copper, regulated by the standard of the forefathers. We have our own smelters and mints. And mines? And rich gold, silver, and copper mines abound everywhere. Precious metals are our cheapest commodities, and the per capita circulation runs into millions. You take my breath away! These diamonds you so greatly admired, at the queen are the products of appalachia i haven't another word to say your highness i am ready to start for appalachia sweetheart and i go to procure tickets for the chateaurois shall i include one for you brownlee said paul give me an hour to think over it Taunton, go with us mr brownlee pleaded the queen the road to appalachia my dear madame is no bed of roses and while I would be willing to face the certain and unavoidable difficulties in order to aid you and to look at your fair land with its wealth of minerals and grandeur, I hesitate to leave my work here, knowing our mutual friend, Mr. Thornton, will lead you thither in triumph, with victory and conquest as his colours. No, my mission is here. His commission sends him there spoke roundly with much feeling. Further conversation was interrupted by the clanging signal from the dining hall, and the two gentlemen hastened to their rooms to prepare for their noonday meal. End of the Queen's Fascinating Recital Recording by Kualada